Hello, welcome back to the Lutheran Witness Podcast. Here on the Lutheran Witness Podcast, we normally read for you the stories on the Lutheran Witness website. However, today we have something special for you. Before we get to that, however, we want to give a quick shout out to our podcast partners, KFUO, KFUO.org, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Check them out on their website, KFUO.org. Here on the Lutheran Witness Podcast today, we have a special uh, surprise for you, the February issue uh, this year will be deal or is dealing with mental health. And one of the key things when we think about mental health is also the mental health of the caregiver, the one providing care. So last fall, I had the opportunity to travel out to Portland, Oregon to visit with Reverend Michael Casting, whose wife has been diagnosed for some time now with Alzheimer's disease. And he sat down and talked with us about uh, what it was to give care in those circumstances, the difficulties he endured, the struggles he faced, uh, all of those type of things. So uh, he spent a good hour talking to us. I also sat down and, and we did some, some uh, video interviews as well. So look, look, out, look online for that as well. And then we will also be publishing both an article he wrote about his experience and his struggle uh, as caregiver, uh, as well as a longer pamphlet that will also be published and available for free download or for um, purchase on the Lutheran Witness website. So keep an eye out for those things. If they're not out already, they will be out soon. So without further ado, uh, the Reverend Mike Casting and, and the story of learning to care for someone with Alzheimer's. Pastor Casting, it's great to be here. Thank you for... Uh, Thank you for having me out here and, and giving us the opportunity and our readers and listeners the opportunity to hear your story. If you could, real quick, kind of give us the broad overview of uh, your life with your, your wife, Sue. Well, Sue and I go back a long ways. We met in high school and began dating there when we were in our junior year of high school. And we've been making history ever since. We had a four and a half year courtship. This was back in Indiana that we met. Had a four and a half year courtship. She went off to college to become a teacher and I went off to college to become a pastor. And so for our college, our undergrad years, we were going to separate campuses and writing letters constantly. All of which letters I still have, about 700 letters. Um, so I like to I like to go back and read those and remind myself of what it was like back then. But we uh, we got married in 1968, um, and then commenced my seminary education, and she got her PhD degree. We called it putting hubby through. Uh, <laughs> she worked as a teacher in a public school, mm -hmm. and I was going to the seminary. And then after vicarage year, she came back pregnant so she stayed home had the baby uh, our first child while I was at fourth year of seminary then in 1972 when I graduated and got ordained we were placed in our first church which also happened to be my vicarage church in Vancouver Washington and I was there for eight years as an assistant pastor and there followed four more churches over 43 years First, the first one I went to afterward was uh, Concordia in Akron, Ohio, an English district church, there for eight years. Then out back to the West Coast, Faith Lutheran in Squim for 11 years, where Sue was also my secretary. 
then 11 years at Trinity here in Oregon City. Um, and then finally, we kind of downsized parishes to a little church in the Midwest, and I spent my last five years at uh, Trinity Lutheran Church in Casey, Illinois. And it was while we were at Trinity that Sue was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and then we chose to move back here to Oregon City. Um, in fact, to the house right next door where we used to live. Oh, really? House yeah. over. Uh, and so we've been here for the last seven years. Um, four of those years, I took care of Sue here in the home. And then three years ago, I placed her in an adult care home in Milwaukee, Oregon, which is about nine miles north. And uh, you have some children also. We have three children. Uh, our oldest, Melanie, uh, works as a caregiver right now for older folks at Mary's Woods, uh, just north of here. Our second daughter, Krista, uh, is a mom of eight children. She and her husband live back in uh, Missouri, um, rural Missouri. Mm -hmm. And then our son, Peter, and his boy, Rowan, live down in the Bay Area in Sunnyvale, California. Nice. So we have a total of nine grandchildren, mm -hmm. along with three children. So uh, you had mentioned and kind of the, the uh, impetus for this conversation is your wife's diagnosis with uh, Alzheimer's. Um, kind of tell me about the early stages of, of her um, struggling with this illness and kind of where did it start to manifest and, and what did that kind of look like for, for you both? Uh, I think she probably noticed it before I did, but she didn't say much. Uh, in her journals that I've, I've got and have read through since, uh, I see her every once in a while asking herself the question, is this the beginning of Alzheimer's? You know, she'll forget this or forget that. She would have a hard time as time went uh, remembering how to play a card game, for example, or being able to follow the storyline in a movie, or simply remembering names. And uh, I didn't notice much change um, in fact, other people noticed it before I did. Mm -hmm. uh, just little lapses of memory. And it was when our kids and we, we and our kids went down to Disneyland for a vacation uh, one December. And a couple of our kids noticed Sue's trouble remembering things and uh, commented to each other about that. Mm -hmm. Not to me or to Sue, mm -hmm. but to each other. I found that out later as well. <laughs> but uh, what I began to notice at home when we were, and we were in Casey, Illinois at the time, this is probably a couple of years before her diagnosis, I noticed that Sue began to take scraps of paper, envelopes, anything she could get a hold of and, and just make notes of everything. If she got a phone call, she'd make notes of that. And mm -hmm. she never used to do that. Uh, she'd make, lists of everything, uh, not only grocery lists, which is usual, but lists of prayers. And uh, I mean, in great detail, uh, not only the names of the people, but what they ask for and mm -hmm. so on, which is more than she ever did. And I thought that was, I was a little surprised at that, but even then I didn't yeah. put together in my head what she was doing, trying to fill in the holes in her memory. Yeah. Um, I think the, the time that brought it to my attention chiefly was I got a phone call one day from 
one of the young people who had been in Sue's children's choir years earlier mm -hmm. uh, up in Squim. Her name is Megan and Megan called me and I was alone in the house at the time and she said, is Sue okay? And I said, well, yeah, why do you ask? And she says, well, she seems different somehow. Uh, she's uh, off base or can't remember things or something. I just wondered if you had, mm -hmm. if something was wrong. And for some reason that phone call startled me into an awareness that I hadn't had. Mm -hmm. And I began to pay attention and then yes, I began to notice what I hadn't been noticing. Because if you live with somebody, the changes in Alzheimer's and a lot of other diseases are so gradual that you simply adjust as you go. Mm -hmm. So that was the, some of the story of how, how it began. Is there anything you could, I mean, is it, is it the sort of thing where it's so gradual, there's just no way, even if you, there's no way to notice unless somebody, you know, has mentioned it to you, or is there something you could have, you would have done differently now as you kind of think back on it? Is there anything you would have done differently um, hmm. or could, could have even done differently as you kind of think about it? I'd say generally, no. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the only thing I might have done differently was take her earlier to see a neurologist. Mm -hmm. um, and even that decision was the suggestion of another lady in our church <laughs> who herself was wondering about her mental capacity. And mm -hmm. she had gone to see a neurologist at a clinic up in Champaign, Illinois. And so I said, I think maybe we better do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know of anything else we could have changed other than I might have, I might have asked Sue more pointedly and say, how are you feeling? Are you, you kind of worried about things? I notice you taking notes of stuff. Um, I might have engaged her or asked her about that. She volunteered almost nothing. Mm -hmm. And uh, like many husbands, I'm notorious for not engaging in as much conversation as I could or should. Yeah, yeah. So uh, probably the only thing would have been to engage her in conversation and maybe take her earlier to see the neurologist. Mm -hmm. But she was still very functional mm -hmm. in almost every way, still very functional. So it's not like it affected our lifestyle a great deal. Yeah. So at this point uh, in your in your book, you mentioned there's kind of three stages. Um, kind of what are those three stages, and where would she have been at this point in your in the in the in the journey? First stage is what you'd call mild cognitive impairment, mm -hmm. um, where people notice that they're forgetting names or they're forgetting dates or they're maybe they lose track of driving home. They can't find their way home. The other lady in our church found that that was something true of her. Um, so mild cognitive impairment, uh, things that you notice, uh, not only forgetting things, but forgetting how to do things. That's a difference. It's, it's one thing to forget names mm -hmm. or dates or places. It's another thing to forget how to get undressed mm -hmm. or how to get dressed or how to bake something that you've baked for years, mm -hmm. or how to uh, sew something on the sewing machine, mm -hmm. things that you, you've done all your life. Um, that's the kind of forgetting that's more concerning, because um, I think most of us forget stuff. 
And and she was you were starting to see a little bit once you were kind of notified and you talked to some friends you started to notify that and that's kind of the stage she was at this mild cognitive impairment. What are right. the other stages well, that eventually she would progress? Um, second stage, um, I think, involves not only the more significant erosion of one's memory, like you might lose track of who your relatives are, mm -hmm. what your relationship with them are, like for example. Sue uh, forgot that our daughter was our daughter. She thought it was her sister or even her mother. Mm -hmm. um, she uh, talked about Mike in the third person, like he was someone else somewhere else. Right, and this is later on in the, this in is, the press. This is, yeah. this is in what I would call second stage, okay. where the erosion is more significant, and also it begins to affect one's mood. Mm -hmm. uh, there are mood changes sometimes uh, anger with some people, um, maybe getting lost, you, you wander off, you've read about people who have Alzheimer's and they've wandered off somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, that happened to Sue three times and the police had to help bring her back each time. Mm -hmm. So it, it's hard for me to, to use uh, more specific words to describe stage two, but it's uh, definitely a lot more things happening and the beginnings, uh, I think the beginnings of some in incontinence okay. happen at stage two. Um, stage three is uh, more severe by far. Uh, that is when you lose your ability to, to navigate and walk. Um, Sue is there right now. She cannot walk without assistance. Lose your ability to talk. Mm -hmm. And not only you talk uh, uh, nonsensically, but maybe even stop talking for long periods. Mm -hmm. So in second stage, your talking may uh, not make sense to people. Uh, you, you may talk about stuff like, uh, does my mother know we're here? Her mother's been dead for years and that sort of thing. But in, the, in stage three, uh, it devolves into gibberish where you can't make any sense of, <clears throat> of what you're hearing. And, and Sue would sometimes say, Right, and I'd, I'd say what? <laughs> right. Can you repeat that or say right. more? But most of what she says now is gibberish when she talks, mm -hmm. which is, most of the time she doesn't talk. She uh, she loses interest in conversation. Um, every once in a while, she'll suddenly brighten up and try to whisper something or say something nonsensical to me. Only very rarely do I hear something that makes sense, like after I do something for her, she might say, thank you. Mm. And suddenly she makes sense. Yeah. Or uh, not too long ago, I bent down to her, I took my, the mask off and held her face and said, I love you, honey. And she looked back at me and said, I love you too. Yeah. Which af after, Months of not hearing anything sensible, to hear that is sort of startling uh, in a pleasant way. Yeah. And you hold on to that. Yeah. So, I, and then in stage three, I should also say, um, as a person approaches death, uh, there's sometimes a loss of the ability to swallow, uh, the loss of the body's ability to handle certain things that you've taken for granted. Uh, not only your your balance and your speech, but swallowing, and then sometimes uh, if people swallow down the wrong way, they might get pneumonia. 
-hmm. And very often it's something else besides Alzheimer's itself that, that finally ends a person's life. Yeah. So when you were in Case, Illinois, and you went to the um, neurologist to get the initial diagnosis, she was kind of in stage one, mild impairment. Um, where were you? So you were there for five years, retired from Casey and decided to move back to Oregon City here. Where was she at stage-wise uh, and, and when you decided to move over this way? Well, she was diagnosed in spring of 2014 and we okay. moved the next summer in 2015. So she was still in stage one. In fact, stayed in stage one for probably uh, two years or so. It was, it was about in the year um, 2017 or so, after we'd been back here two years, I'm guessing, mm -hmm. that more serious problems began to arise and her behaviors became increasingly unusual and frustrating to me and I didn't know what to do about those. So I would say stage one for her, and, and this differs with people, but for her, it lasted probably a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Stage two seemed to go on for, well, until she got into the care home where I eventually placed her. Mm -hmm. And stage three has begun while, while she's been at the care home. So I would say she's been in stage three at least the last year, where she not able to talk and not able to sing any longer, not able to speak sensibly year, year and a half for those. Let's, uh, I, I want to come back to that, but you, you just talked about uh, her singing. Tell me a little bit about uh, Sue's voice and singing. That's kind of been mm. an important part of her life. Oh, yeah. Uh, and an important part of her growing up. Her family was a musical family. Her dad was uh, very near to being a concert pianist. Her mother and grandmother were soloists. In fact, her granny sang at our wedding. Mm. Her granny was also a choir director who directed five choirs while she was a seminary wife. Her husband was a homiletics prof in Dayton, and she led five choirs at the university. <laughs> um, her mother, Geraldine, was um, a music teacher in school as well as being a soloist. Mm -hmm. um, and so Sue came by, she was surrounded with music all the time. Everybody in the family's musical, mm -hmm. including her brothers. Um, Sue didn't really have much formal training in music, but she just was naturally gifted. And so all through school and high school and college, she was in musical groups, uh, sang in the girls' sextet in high school and in the octet called the Central Airs in college. Mm -hmm. I still have a recording of the Central Airs from 1967. <laughs> um, but Sue has been a soloist for many occasions. In fact, when we were dating, one of our favorite dates was when she would go sing at a wedding or a funeral, mm -hmm. and I would sit in the balcony and listen. Mm -hmm. And often her dad was her accompanist. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when she became my wife and, you know, the, you know, the pastor's wife in the parish, she often um, covered the basses. She'd fill in for the uh, organist. If the organist was sick, she'd play the piano. She led children's choirs for like 30 years. When we needed a soloist for a wedding or a funeral, Sue was there. So she did a lot of that, and I just, I just so appreciated her voice. And um, she sang at home. 
uh, and our children were immersed in music all the time. Mm -hmm. In fact, all of our children have become very musical also. Uh, I'm the only one in the family who doesn't play an instrument. <laughs> Everybody else plays at least the piano and then other things. And they still, all of them, remember the music they heard when they were children. Uh, how did uh, music um, kind of play out in the progression of Alzheimer's for her, you know? Um, at first, uh, even when she was in the beginning stages, it didn't affect her. Mm -hmm. um, she sang and still was, she was still soloing when we moved here. Mm -hmm. She and our daughter Melanie sang duets at the church in Damascus where they go. She sang some solos at our church from the balcony. So she could still do that even though she was, had cognitive impairment by that mm -hmm. time. When we were still back in Illinois, one of the ladies in the church said, oh, I just gonna miss your voice. Could you record that? So we recorded uh, eight solos of hers one night. Mm -hmm. Our church organist helped. The Nazarene pastor was the facilitator and we, we got the voice recorded. So I still have those and I'm so glad because I can still hear her sing yeah. that way. Yeah. But uh, she began to uh, lose her ability uh, and by the time she moved into the care home three years ago, our daughter Melanie would go over and try to sing hymns with her out of the hymnal. And Sue could, Sue could do that to an extent. But uh, she would stumble on the words and lose her place and then laugh. Or, mm -hmm. And so that was eroding. Um, a, a year later or so, this is about a year and a half ago, she was still trying to sing with me when we'd sing Happy Birthday or sing Jingle Bells or something simple. Um, in the past uh, six months, I would say she's lost her ability to sing at all. She doesn't sing anymore. And, uh, you know, that to me, of course, a great loss because that's like the golden thread that's woven through our life together is her yeah. singing. Yeah. I can imagine that's hard to watch mm -hmm. um, as a husband and, and as a pastor. Yeah. Um, You've mentioned the three stages. Uh, could you kind of walk us through about uh, what what is caregiving? You know, as the caregiver, what does that look like? So you know, you talked about her dealing with the three stages and kind of what that looks like in terms of Alzheimer's. What does it mean for the caregiver as you care for somebody going through these three stages? Can you kind of describe hmm. what it was that you, what your work was, and and how this impacted you as she worked through the stages? Yeah. I got a lot of images and memories that sort of flood together, so I'm not sure this is chronological exactly. <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, bonded us over the years was that we read books together out loud to each other. Mm -hmm. um, part of caregiving means that you begin to lose the things that have bonded you, like reading books together became harder and harder and finally had to stop because she couldn't she couldn't read so well and she couldn't follow as well. She lost interest. Mm -hmm. You know, we used to go watch movies together or TV programs that had some, like the Hallmark Channel she liked. And um, she couldn't follow the narrative of those anymore. And so for me as a caregiver, I lost the things that I enjoyed doing with her. Mm -hmm. And you, you also, you, your conversation erodes. 
Um, so I can describe part of, part of the experience of caregiver as progressive loss of the things that your partner meant to you. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the things you have to do for the other person. But before we or, go there, kind or, of describe that. Uh, what, or what do you have to do then to kind of uh, deal with that? How did you cope with, you know, you, you're watching these losses, these things that tied you together. How did you come to grips with that? What did you do to, um, to understand that? Well, some, some things you simply have to give up. Um, other thing, I, I, I suppose what I did was partly say, all right, we can still do this, so we'll do this together. Mm -hmm. We would still take walks. Mm -hmm. We could still walk. In fact, when we placed her at her home, even there, we still walked around the block. Mm -hmm. So we'd try to compensate by doing more of other things. Um, she still liked to eat. So we'd go out, I'd, I'd take her to special times. I, I, I mentioned uh, Mike's drive-in. Mm -hmm. I used to, even, even when she was uh, getting worse in her Alzheimer's and she would sometimes say, I wanna go home mm -hmm. and we are at home. So I would sometimes bundle her into the car and say, well, let's take a drive and we'll, we'll get home. So then I would, I would drive her downtown. We'd, we'd get an ice cream cone at Mike's drive-in or someplace, um, I'd take her out to eat uh, a meal. Um, if it was in the evening and we had gotten uh, an ice cream cone, then I would come home and say, oh, we're, we're home, as if her wish had been realized. Yeah. So I think I would I'd compensate for the loss of some things by doing more of other things, especially taking drives, walking together, um, we used to do jigsaw puzzles, but that was getting more challenging too. So after a while, we gave that up. We still went to church together. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, in fact, the last time she went to church was uh, at our daughter's church on Easter morning, mm -hmm. a year ago, Easter. Uh, that was the last time she got out to church. Mm -hmm. But we, we still tried to go to church together. Um, I would sing to her, and so, if she could sing with me, fine, but if she couldn't, then I would still sing to her. Mm -hmm. We always had sung prayers in the morning and in the evening, uh, and in the evening we'd sing Day is Done, Gone the Sun, From the Lake, From the Hill, From the Sky, and mm -hmm. I'd sing all the songs with her that we used to sing with our children when we put them to bed, mm -hmm. and uh, I still do that in our visits, even now that she can no longer sing. What? Um what is the caregiver's kind of burden and responsibility uh, as you move now into like stage two or stage three? One of, the, one of the challenges that I think every caregiver has to face is you're used to relating to a person with reason. Mm -hmm. um, for example, if during her normal years, she would have said something about her, slipped and said something about her mom who died in 2010, I might say, remember honey, your mom died. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But when she would bring up things uh, that concern her family in Indiana, her mother, her father, and other things, in other words, things have changed totally. At first, I would try to reason with her and say, well, honey, you remember that your mother died on, in May of that year, uh, or you know, granny has been gone a long time, or whatever. Mm -hmm. 
I couldn't do that anymore. I had to simply finally live in her world where she was. And in, in her world, mom was right next door and she wondered where we were and, and Sue was worried that mom didn't know where she was. Mm -hmm. And so instead of saying, uh, your mother's dead and gone, I would say, oh, well, your mother knows where we live. She knows we live here. And, and I think they feel pretty good about that. Yeah. Which, I, which and that is, kind of deals with some of her, she would get anxiety not knowing things you know, thinking that she didn't know where her mother didn't know where she was, that type of thing. And this kind of helps her yeah. work through that. Yeah. And in, in other ways, you simply, I simply had to learn how to live in her reality. Mm -hmm. Her reality was altered. Mm -hmm. um, things that were still real to her or happening to her that aren't happening, mm -hmm. uh, I would simply have to go along with it and not try to correct her and everything, mm -hmm. uh, which would simply frustrate her uh, she wouldn't understand that. Uh, whereas if I would go with her and express my feelings with her about that, then she felt like she was accompanied wherever she was going at that time. I don't know if that makes sense, but living in her world with her instead of trying to correct her and make her live in my world, since she's so changed. Mm -hmm. uh, Anything else on the caregiving side of things that you'd like to share? I think besides entering into the reality of the person, uh, another thing is that I really need to learn to let go and not be in control. And uh, maybe like a lot of people, I like it better when I'm in control of everything. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm used to having been in control, but uh, Alzheimer's really forced me to say, I'm not in control of this at all. Um, Sue began to do things that I, by instinct, wanted to correct. For example, she would go in the bathroom and take a tube of toothpaste and spread it on her forehead like cold cream and down her cheeks. Or she would put earrings in her hair. Well, you know, earrings don't go in the hair and toothpaste doesn't go on your forehead. And my instinct, just over many years, is to say, don't do that. And let's, let's use it for teeth and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And I had, I really had to get over a hump in trying to correct everything she did because so much of what she did was no longer correct. Mm -hmm. It didn't fit. It wasn't appropriate. It didn't hurt anything, really. I mean, lose a little toothpaste on her forehead, mm -hmm. uh, maybe lose an earring. Who cares? <laughs> but I had to get over my desire to correct all of these things and be in charge of that. And uh, the way it happened was that it, it kept happening so regularly that I finally got lost in the maze of things that needed correcting and finally had to stop and say to myself, I've got to quit doing this. Mm -hmm. um, and the people in my support group echoed the same things, that they had the same problem with their significant other at home. They were trying to, to do this and that and realized that they couldn't control everything. So... I think control is one big word, as well as entering her reality is another. Um, so what stage, kind of walk us through the stage that she was at where you finally came to the realization you needed to get, uh, you needed to put her in a, in a place where she could receive full-time care, kind of beyond what you're able to do. I had thought initially that, um, that caregiving tasks themselves would be too much for me, like 
uh, if she got incontinent and I had to clean her up and I didn't like, you know, changing depends or cleaning up a mess in the bathroom, I had thought that that would be the issue for me. Mm -hmm. um, but that turned out not to be so much of an issue. I, the times I did that, in a way I didn't mind, not nearly so much as the control issue, especially when nighttime came and instead of getting ready for bed like we always used to do, she wanted to get her coat on and go out and go home or go somewhere else. And maybe you I'm already- You talk about that, sundowners. Kind of explain what yeah. that is, it's a well, cool thing. One of the things that come on as a part of this disease, at least for some of the people, is that as the day gets later, their anxiety level grows and their discomfort with things. And with Sue, it manifested itself as, as the day got later, she would get more nervous and then she would say, we need to go home. And especially when it got dark, and she'll get her coat on and say, we need to go home. And I'd, I'd try to reason with her and say, well, honey, we are at home. Well, that didn't make any difference. That wasn't her world. So I learned to enter that. And uh, sundowners be, has become, you know, just part of her everyday life. In fact, right now she has to get medicated for anti-anxiety with anti-anxiety meds. Mm -hmm. uh, because she simply gets so anxious at the end of the day. And her body twitches and flinches and she'll, she'll startle up in her chair and maybe try to get up and move or, or leave. Um, that's, that's just what Sundowners does. Mm -hmm. And so I had, to, I had to get used to that. And even now in my visitation, when I visit her, I go in the morning rather than later in the day mm -hmm. because her, her caregiver says she's not as good to visit with later in the day. So Okay, so it's kind of learning to deal. That was one of the things that helped you recognize at some point that you needed to get uh, more help. Um, yeah, back, back to the issue of what triggered it. Um, I found myself getting frustrated enough that I began to lose control of my emotions and my temper. Mm -hmm. um, I know people don't feel comfortable being honest about their tempers, mm -hmm. especially if we're Christians and we say, we're supposed to be in control of that stuff. But Alzheimer's is a disease that for me tested my temper and my patience to the nth degree. And uh, I began regularly to lose patience with her. She'd come, I would try to do something else and she'd come stand in front of me with hands full of things as if I'm supposed to do something. And when that happens just routinely and you, I can't get to anything because she's always interrupting me, uh, I would boil over in frustration and when this goes on for weeks and more weeks and more weeks and your whole life changes, you, you lose the control that you thought you had over yourself. And I did. And I began to lose my temper, uh, shout at her, which would scare her. And then I, I try to back off, um, but lose loss of control of my mouth. And sometimes I would try to get physical and force her to do what she didn't want to do. Like she didn't want to take a shower. I couldn't make her take a shower. I sort of tried to force her to, and she fought me. Mm -hmm. So all right, I'm not, I can't make her get in the shower. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then I found that was true of other things. Uh, it was time for bed. It's you know 11 o'clock at night, a little past when we usually go to bed. I'm tired, it's been an exhausting day. 
she seems frazzled, but she wants to get her coat on and go home. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I would lose control to the point where I, I said, you're going to get into bed. We need to go to bed. Let's do that now. Um, if, I, if she was in her pajamas, then I would push her to the bed, pull the covers back, mm -hmm. make, forcibly make her lay down. And she would resist that. And I just wasn't used to that. Any time in our marriage, that, that was a totally new, new bridge to cross. And so the idea of we need to do this, you need to do this, and how I can't talk you into doing it, so I guess the only thing left is forcing you to do it. Mm -hmm. But then when I tried to force her to do it, she'd, she'd sometimes fight back, <laughs> good for her. <laughs> and, and then I was left with uh, shouting at her and, and, all, and all of that became so distressing to me that uh, a couple of times I simply broke down and wept. Uh, what's happening? She would sometimes say, why are you saying this? Why are you doing this? And I didn't have a good answer. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that said to me, uh, this is not going to wind up well unless I, I am able to find a safe place for her. Mm -hmm. So the issue for me was safety instead of caregiving and, mm -hmm. and hard work. Yeah. yeah. And, and you found actually something of a unique or a kind of a new type of place uh, that the, that's being developed uh, or these, these care homes uh, you mentioned. It's kind of a new idea-ish, I think. Uh, kind of talk well, it was a little new bit to this. me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what uh, is I'm sure they've been around for a while mm -hmm. uh, now that I talk to other people, but I didn't know where Sue should go. I knew that there were large um, memory care facilities because Sue's father was in one in Indiana mm -hmm. years ago. It was a locked unit. They, they couldn't get out, and we couldn't get in except by a pass. So I was used to large memory care facilities where there were dozens of residents and dozens of caregivers. Um, but when we launched in a search for that for Sue, uh, the, the actual place I started was by daycare. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a place south of us in Canby, Oregon, where... Uh, one of my fellow caregivers said, I take my husband there, you might like to try that. So I took Sue there and I could drop her off in the morning and they would watch her until four in the afternoon and give me a break. I just needed a break, mm -hmm. you know, just like parents with little children need a break. <laughs> uh, and I had no tag team partner. Mm -hmm. So I took Sue there and over the two years that I used that place, that was very helpful. In fact, I got to the point where I was taking her instead of once a week, twice a week. Mm -hmm. There were some people who came even more often than that. Um, but that was also, in my frame of reference, that was expensive. So, And besides, it still left the bulk of the week where I was still doing this and I still didn't feel like Sue was safe or I was safe from myself. Mm -hmm. So... <clears throat> Um, I talked with my daughter, my oldest daughter who lives nearby about it, and we said, we need to commence a search for a place where we can put mom. Mm -hmm. So we got the help of a, a group called All About Seniors, which is a local version of A Place for Mom, which is a national organization. And this group, All About Seniors, helped us prepare a list of facilities to explore 
and weeded out ones that were inferior or spoken against. And so we had a group of those, and the lady actually took us to visit places. And after weeding out some, we decided on a place, and we registered Sue. And she was on the waiting list there for six months, and nobody called. And meanwhile, I began to get uncomfortable with the idea of placing her in this large, elegant warehouse for people mm -hmm. where the staff would change every eight hours mm -hmm. and there were dozens of other residents. And I think, do I want her there? And meanwhile, my daughter had heard from someone that there are, there's something called adult care homes, which I had not heard of, but I became aware of them. And the lady who helped us find the original list said, well, yeah, I can help you find those too if that's what you want. So we did the same thing. We made a list, uh, went and visited all of these, and narrowed down to, I think there were uh, three places finally that had vacancies. So we went through a process and finally chose one that I thought was most caring, most loving. And I'm in retrospect, I'm very glad we did that because the staff is always the same. It's more like living in a home with a family. Mm -hmm. And being in a home with a family is better than being in an institution, no matter how nice or well-programmed. Right. At least for us, it was. For other people, the institution with program may be right answer. Mm -hmm. But for us, it wasn't. And uh, Sue has, has done well there. She's very peaceable and well-cared for. So I'm, I'm very thankful for God's provision that way. Uh, and in general, you know, they, they tend to have fewer residents, you know, you said same ongoing staff. So you kind of, like you said, you build this family, this community. Yeah. The place where Sue is now has only five residents. They all happen to be women, although initially there was one man there. Mm -hmm. um, most of them are confined to their rooms because of their health. Um, I mean, most of the residents are further along than Sue, or at least were mm -hmm. when we arrived. Um so Sue made some initial friends there with another resident or two and had some kind of nice talk and interaction. Uh, that has faded as she and the other residents get older and less capable. Yeah. Uh, but the staff in this home is uh, all sisters mm. from the Philippines. They, they're now American citizens and they, they help care for the residents. There's always at least three on duty um, sometimes I'll see all five of them there at one time, but there's a, a real good ratio of caregivers to receivers. And Sue is very peaceable and they interact in a very loving way with her. And so I feel very much at ease that she's in good hands. And when I go, I've got more energy and I can focus on her and I can enter her reality and I can absorb whatever news I might get about yeah. that so talk a little bit about uh how you found um encouragement and sustenance uh, as a caregiver kind of during these years um, what what have you done to ensure that you're being you have something i, I know in the book you mentioned you felt like you were giving out of empty pockets you know, so there was points kind of low points yeah um kind of describe those and then what you did to kind of help recover from well the caregiver needs care that's for sure my first line of care was my family. We moved here because my daughter and son-in-law live five miles away 
And so they, are, they have always been the first line of care for me. I, I go there frequently. I'm, I'm always on their doorstep. Can I visit? Can I spend some time? So that's, that was my first level. Um, our church family was a good caregiving family. The people at the church, I let them know what we were facing, and they were all very good about uh, inquiring about Sue and asking about me. So our church family has been a good family that way. Um, when I moved back to this area with Sue, I knew that I was going to need some sort of support group formally. So I joined a support group in town that met at the local community center. They only met monthly, which I thought wasn't nearly enough. I, I needed more often than that, but at least they met monthly. And that was of some help. And they provided some connections to other caregiving agencies, including All About Seniors. Mm -hmm. um, another level of care that we got was when I began to find myself overwhelmed with the daily stuff, uh, I wanted to have uh, some tag team. I'm, I, I, since I didn't have my wife to be my tag team anymore, uh, who could I get? So I recruited half a dozen ladies that knew us from our former church here in town. And I asked each one of them, would you be willing to be available to me to give respite care and sit with Sue for a while, maybe a couple of hours while I'm out or away or by myself? And they all agreed to that. They simply said, just call us a day or two ahead so we can schedule. So I tried to schedule them in such a way, and there were six of them, so none of them was overburdened. I never had a person come more than once in a week. But with six of them, I could have a couple of them in a week if I needed to. Mm -hmm. So those ladies were a big help. There were several individuals also that took it upon themselves to simply look after me. Mm -hmm. One couple at church fixed me meals, said, we know you're not getting meals like you used to. <laughs> and I said, you bet. So they fixed me meals. Uh, there's another lady that came over and said, um, I'll, I'll sit with Sue and read to her. Uh, she just, she did that on her own. She wasn't part of the gang of six, mm -hmm. but she did that on her own. And there was another lady who has periodically, and even now, still checks up on me and us. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, I have a lot of people, friends over Facebook and in the internet that write to inquire or phone me. So really, it's been large family of care and I've been the recipient of a lot of that. Um, as you've walked this long journey um, and continue to walk this long journey, um, what place has your faith played in this? How has it been tested, strengthened? How has it been there for you? What's kind of been that, yeah. that connection? Well, you use the word tested. It mm -hmm. certainly is a test. Um, it, it tests one's faith because a lot of times you, you assume uh, you and God are fine because there's, there's no troubled waters. But as soon as troubled waters come, then you say, well, what do I really believe and what do I really look to the Lord for? Mm -hmm. um, I think that it, it tested me um, by, by taking away, I, I've been, gradually losing things that mattered to me. Not only my wife and the things I do with her, but my sense of freedom, uh, 
my sense of uh, being al together with someone versus alone. Um, it's the first time in my life uh, that I've really lived alone uh, since Sue has been placed in her home. That's been a test. And of course, the tests of my patience and my ability to, you know, to crucify myself and what I wanted and put Sue first, that was a test. So, yeah, your faith gets tested in a lot of ways. Um, my, my habit, my discipline of having daily devotions has been an encourager to me uh, to not lose my life link to, to God daily. Um, I have a little group that comes over to the house every Thursday, and they've been prayer partners, and we always pray together. Uh, and part of our prayers have been for this ordeal. Uh, they're very familiar with what I've been going through. And, of course, all of them have gone through stuff, too. So yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's not like a one-way street. Um, so in, in these ways, um, God has sustained me. Uh, I mentioned all those, those caregiving people, the gang of six from church, the church family and their inquiries, the lady that comes over to read, and those who call. Often they are, are partners in faith. They're people who, because they love the Lord and they know that Sue and I do, that's our link with each other. I think that there, are, there have been a couple of books uh, besides the Bible, mm -hmm. which I read daily, but there have been a couple of other books uh, written by some Christian people. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them, uh, Douglas Grotheis, mm -hmm. that I reference in my paper. Um, he's a Christian. He's actually a faculty member at the Denver Seminary. Um, and he talks about his wife's dementia. Hers is aphasia, the loss of the ability to speak. She who was a speaker and writer. Mm -hmm. um, so I've read the writings of several people who are Christian people who struggle with caregiving. And I find that their faith is a witness to me uh, just through their writing. Grotheis, now that you mention it, uh, he had a, a way of talking about your relationship with God as you kind of work through this. Uh, do you remember what he what he said there in that book? He mentioned something about trying to remember the exact term he used. It was uh, lamenting without complaining. Lamenting without complaint. Kind of describe that. Uh, what, what does he mean by that? Well, he's trying to confront the reality that this is hard, mm -hmm. and that this is going to make you angry, fearful, tearful, by turns, sometimes all at once, and. Um, Instead of running away from that, he says the Christian shouldn't be embarrassed about feeling things. Just because we're people of God doesn't mean we don't have feelings mm -hmm. and we go through all the testing and stress of these situations. He says it, it would be beneficial for a Christian to be able to lament. And he distinguishes that from complaining. Mm -hmm. it, we're all experts in complaining because we do it all the time. And I have done my share. Um, but instead of simply complaining, say, isn't this awful? Don't you feel sorry for me? I am, I'm angry at this. Instead of doing that, he says, the Bible encourages us, especially in the Psalms, to lament. And that means to feel and express our grief, but to say it in a way to God, as if we put it on a plate and say, 
God, this is the real me right now, and this is how I'm feeling. I offer it to you. I don't know how you'll help me, but I'm asking for help. Please take it as, as the real me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's been a while since I read him, so I, I can't quote him exactly otherwise, except to say that that was a, that was a powerful idea for me to distinguish between lamenting and complaining. The whole book of Lamentations is lamenting. Psalms is full of psalms of lament. I mean, there's a lot of lamenting. Even Jesus laments over Jerusalem when he, go, he gets there and, and weeps at the death of his friend. So there's a lot of lamenting in the Bible, but it's lamenting that's uh, useful, especially because it brings us into the presence of God rather than holding him out. Mm -hmm. um, I like that notion that, that I say, God, please come alongside me. Here, I give you my grief and my anger. Help me work through this. Mm -hmm. Help me get a handle. So, Lamenting in faith. Yeah. 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 In the or what, of Jesus. what Paul might call it good grief <laughs> yes. instead of bad grief. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with about um, four minutes left, anything that I haven't mentioned that you'd like to say to our listeners or readers, watchers? Um, I guess the verse, excuse me, mm -hmm. in everything give thanks. I'm having to learn that. Um, and that it's possible to give thanks in the midst of this in the midst of tears, uh, in everything give thanks, even when I go visit Sue in her weakness, uh, I can still laugh, I can still find joy in a, something as simple as her smiling at me, mm -hmm. uh, something as simple as her saying, thank you, two words words that I haven't heard maybe for some weeks, and, and then I hear it. And I hold on to, um, as one author said, living on the other side of eternity. Um, the promise that God says, this will end. I'm going to restore her. I'm going to restore you. That's what I hold on to. So that's what I'd add, uh, if you can make sense of my talking through my emotions. We can make perfect sense of it. It's uh, completely understandable and part of the struggle of learning to lament uh, yeah. in faith and lament yeah. with Christ, lament without complaint. Well, uh, thank you for your time. Thank you for welcoming uh, me into your home and uh, into your life with your wife and your, your family and friends here. And uh, thank you for sharing your struggle with us mm -hmm. in, in your story that we're going to be publishing soon and, uh, and, and in the article that we're sharing in the February issue. So thank you very much. And, uh, well, it's my privilege to have you as my guest and my partner. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this story about uh, being a caregiver for somebody with Alzheimer's disease and learning a little bit about what it means to lament without complaint, but also how in everything to give thanks. I want to give a 
a huge thank you once again to Pastor Casting for welcoming us into his home, welcoming us into his life to hear this story, this very personal story of struggle and, uh, and also joy in the midst of struggle. And then once again, a, a shout out again to kfuo.org for their work sponsoring us as the Luther Witness Podcast. As always, we're here to help you learn to interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. <laughs>